It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You guys, I have super important life-altering news to share with you all. You're pregnant again. Don't even joke about that. Did Trump resign? Impeachment. More important than all of this. We got tickets to Hamilton. Oh. Wow. That's an accurate portrayal of the In New York or in Washington? In Washington. At the Kennedy Center. Good work. Oh. Good work. Which is really, I feel like it's a more relevant topic in Washington anyway. So New York was kind of faking the whole time. Exactly. This is the real one. The original cast, that's extremely played well, out. Well, I mean, guys. it's really These important. the tickets everyone actually wants. Yep. Don't you have to, like, do something really extreme to get in line just to get the tickets at the Kennedy Center I do. I think there was some. We got them through a friend who knows someone yeah. on the show. Who Which is a someone. very typical Washington way to get Exactly. Anything. Totally. Oh, wow. And it makes you like it and enjoy it even more because they just fell into your lap. I also I also have tickets in August, but I have to say that the carpool karaoke version of Hamilton with uh, Leonor Miranda and a bunch of other Broadway stars is the best version of Hamilton ever. <laughs> I uh, am from New York, as many of our listeners know, and so I went New York style on this, and my husband and I bought these Hamilton tickets in New York by just throwing money at the problem and going to see the original cast. So no connections, no information, but it is amazing, and it is accurately ranked, and it's importance in this discussion here. I'm going to follow up with a review next week. Stay tuned. I like cats. Hello, and welcome to a special edition Rational Security Plus Bombshell, or I Like Cats. (laughs) (laughs) The musical, I Also Like Cats and the Animals. Who Who here has seen Cats? You have? When I was a kid in yes. school, we went on a field trip and it was amazing. Did they the come time. up and play with your clothes? They and sure like, did. And yep. it was very mm-hmm. exciting as like a, you know, nine-year-old. I'm sorry. That's really creepy. Yeah. Like adults walking on dresses. I'm not a fan of cats. audience interaction. Yeah. No. In no. any format it's, of any And it's like, like the most whatsoever. audience interactive. So like, it makes you very And now it would make yeah. me very uncomfortable. I don't even like people I know interacting with <laughs> We are here for a very special edition. If you're wondering, like, who the hell are all these people talking? Or if you're listening to Bombshell and wondering, who the hell am I? <laughs> uh, I'm Shane Harris of Rational Security, here with Susan Hennessy, also of Rational Security. Hi, Susan. Hi. And would the Bombshell crew like to chime in? Uh, Lauren and Rada? I am Lauren DeYoung Shulman with the Bombshell Podcast. And Rada Iyengar, also with Bombshell. We are missing our third in crime, who will join at some point, hopefully. She's, she's somewhere on the Key she's Bridge. She's on a secret key bridge on traffic the Key Bridge. Traffic <laughs> and we have lost Ben and Tammy to Israel. To Israel, week. that's right. Mm. They, they appear off. From pictures, they appear to be having a very good time. Yeah, that's they're great. having a lot of fun and eating like a lot of hummus. Mm-hmm. I went to Canada last week, which, which seemed likely that we would be at war with Canada while I was there. So it, at least it's nice they're in a country we're not going to be at war with. In the a, a nice, calm, peaceful so. country like Israel, guys. Right, sure. Right. Totally. Exactly. Nothing could go wrong there. I like that. I like that. Um, so we're going to merge our two podcasts this week. And I think we're going to kick off with uh, the ladies from Bombshell. So as Bombshell listeners know, we ask all of our guests a series of questions in order to kind of set the mood, understand the personality. It's basically a good predictor of everything in life. Um, So we're going to start with Susan. What book does everyone else love, but you just can't stand? So this is a very topical answer. The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, Oh, wow. 
brave. You might get don't some like it. Hate didn't mail. like it the first time I read it. Didn't like it the second time I read it because I was like, "What am I missing?" That everyone's so into it now, and like tried five minutes of the show. Don't get didn't it. Didn't I? Don't get it. Susan and I can not watch shows together. I mean, not That's mostly great. me because I suck at pop culture, but still, I like this. I'm going with it. I like that it's an unpopular choice too because mm-hmm. everyone's supposed mm-hmm. to love that book, and especially now. But no. Especially the women folk, I think. I also didn't like how many years of solitude. What? 100. 100 a years. Oh it's a you all okay. of the it's solitude. It's a terrible book. So like in, so the, in the book's defense. I, I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> Joe was reading it out loud. We see this thing where he, he reads oh, <laughs> So he reads out. He reads, I don't like anything that my husband reads out loud. So this is like the back. belly button book, maybe. But. Right, right. Just send me to sleep at night. No, Joe reads articles from magazines usually out loud while I cook and we're having drinks and the nights we're cooking. It's like actually, it's fun because he gets to read and I wake to absorb it so we tried to do that with the book once and like you can't follow this goddamn book when you're reading it like yourself like you could be in a, in a soundproof room concentrating all you can having someone read it out loud it was just it was just mush i've got like a 10th grade book report that is gonna break it down for you <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's gonna bust it wide open i, want a sense I read that book be able to follow the whole Spanish, thing. and i didn't like it either way <laughs> oh shane what entrance music would you have if you're entering you know extravaganza conference Memory from Cats. <laughs> Grizabella's theme. Of course. Wow. <laughs> no, actually, I would pick, uh, do you know the song Battle Without Honor or Humanity? No. <laughs> Have you seen Kill Bill? What are you talking yes. about? Possibly. You know the one where they're like all in the house of blue leaves yeah. or whatever uh-huh. and all like the, the crazy 88s or whatever come in? That yeah. song. There you okay. go. Okay. That, that is some badass entrance music. That's amazing. It's like I came That's here such to a good take answer. heads mm-hmm. and maybe some names. All of the heads. With Great. a sword. All of it. And an awesome kimono. That's an excellent answer. I would pick that one for sure. All right. Uh, however, I think if you were in like a job interview, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I tried uh, with Marty with Baron memories. and they hired me. That's true. I feel like, no, okay, to be fair, Marty Baron would be like, sold? Pay this man. <laughs> he would just sit there and be like, yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's all okay. it is. Um, all right. On the podcast this week, President Trump signs an order to keep immigrant families together, trying to defuse a crisis of his own making. Love it when that happens. Is the U.S. in a trade war with fill in the blank? Uh, and get ready for Space Force. Space Force. It's not a movie. We're going to have Space Force. Um, we're going to start with the uh, – so this is, I guess, breaking news. So everyone's probably – obviously, if you're listening to the podcast you've been following, or if you're just a sentient, reasonable – compassionate human being. You've been following uh, the crisis for the past several days at the border where children have been being separated with their families who are crossing into the border, uh, the southwest border primarily. Well, actually, they're not coming in with Canada. So, yeah, it is the southwest border. President Trump signed an executive order uh, which will require that the families and their uh, children uh, be kept together in the same facility while the adults' cases are adjudicated. Um, Susan, let me kick this just first to you. One question I have is why we even need an executive order to solve this problem. It seems like this was maybe just something for the president to sign. He could have picked up the phone and told CBP, stop doing this. But um, what's your kind of initial take on the <laughs> how, how this, this, this kind of uh, final act maybe or this next act? 
Yeah, so we we didn't need an executive order, but to understand why we didn't need an executive order and what this executive order does, we have to take a step back to the original policy. This is the zero tolerance prosecution policy. So um, there is a, a court order, it's called uh, the Flores order, that essentially says that the government is not allowed to detain a child for more than 20 days. They have to transfer them to HHS custody. Um, there's obvious reasons why you wouldn't want a child to be detained for longer than that period of time. Um, so what happens is, uh, in the prior administration, that meant that families were released, right? Um, you have two choices whenever you're presented with the, with not being able to detain a child for 20 days. Either you don't arrest them in the first place or you release the entire family. Um, so what we're seeing with the Trump policy, with the zero tolerance policy, is this decision to prosecute and thus incarcerate every single parent. You then had all of the children that they were arriving with. So uh, what the Trump policy was doing was forcing the separation, the forcing separation is because at 20 days, they had to transfer the kids somewhere else. So what this new order says is they want to try and keep families together, but they're asking DOJ to go back to the court to ask for a modification of this Flores order, because essentially they're saying, we're not going to start releasing families prior to the 20 days. We want to incarcerate families together for longer for than longer that 20 than day period. Yeah. Now, there's no guarantee that a, that a court is actually going to agree to modify this order. So uh, Trump has issued this executive order. He hasn't necessarily changed the zero tolerance policy. So this is all sort of, once again, like we saw in the travel ban, we had sort of the, the worst, most chaotic, malevolent, uh, ill-thought-out manifestation. Now we're going to try again with round two. There's still lots and lots of legal problems and legal problems that are going to lead to chaos. Mind you, there is no reunification plan for children that have already been taken, right? So this is more than 2,000 kids. Absolutely no re reunification plan laid out at all. So this is probably going to be uh, like the travel ban. There will be multiple iterations in court before we get to whatever sort of the, the final solution is here. So one, this is horrific. And so it takes a lot to actually read through the information to understand what's going on. And so I just want to stop and make that point. But now to take it to the next level of nerdy economist land, fundamentally, the deterrence part of this policy separate from the legal question relies on the relative costs of of migrating to the U.S. versus staying where they are. So the point here of the deterrence angle on this policy is to make it unpleasant enough to come to the U.S. that it's not worth entering. And that's the rough underlying rationale. Again, legality aside. So as a reminder, we've got three groups of people coming in that are being captured sort of in this discussion of children, unaccompanied minors, people actually fleeing their countries, but coming in in a sort of uh, migratory status, and then formal asylum seekers, that is people coming to the border and seeking asylum. Normally, when we think about deterrence, we worry about like, are these people really rational and sort of weighing the cost imbalances, which is very apt here. Even if you thought they were, the question of how bad are we willing to make it in order for people not to cross the border is the fundamental deterrence question. And at the point where we think family separations are not the thing that we're willing to morally tolerate, but are also not sufficient to impose enough costs on people to get them to stop coming across the border, you have to really question whether deterrence is the right policy tool to be using here to sort of reduce flows across the border. Again, legality and moral questions aside, it's not even clear this is an effective 
effective policy mechanism to address the issue at hand. I mean, like, just quickly to that point, I think the right metaphor is if you have a house on fire, you can try and make it really hard for the people to get out of the house, or you can try and put the fire out. So at the same time that we're having this conversation, we are also doing less and less and less to actually help create more stable conditions in the countries from which these individuals are fleeing. So the other point part that's important to remember is that, you know, a lot of the emotional impact of the stories about family separation have been the photos of children in the tent cities, in the in the cages that apparently, which is a term that CBP does not like because cages sounds like an animal. Um, we are not actually solving the problem of where these families will be housed because most of the DHS detention centers that are built for families are just about full right now. So we are either going to have to start putting them in federal facilities that are not built for children or Secretary Mattis today very helpfully offered that whatever Department of Homeland Security would like or whatever they need, he's happy to be able to house families who are in ICE detention on military bases, which could be a problem. Just two thoughts on that, which are one, as the Trump administration regularly points out in their totally consistent response to this problem, uh, this is both not a problem and a thing the Obama administration did but didn't do enough. But the Obama administration did, in fact, house children on military bases for, for periods of time. That was largely, at least at the time, framed as an emergent sort of exigent circumstances issue, not a formal policy, part A. And part B, they were thought of as unaccompanied minors who weren't at risk and sort of this was an interim solution. The Trump administration narrative is that these are potential criminals, people we should be actively prosecuting the worst of the worst. So at the same time, they are expressing concern about the worst of the worst. They are offering, they are now considering taking up an offer to house them on sensitive military facilities where it's not clear what the security protocol is, right? So again, like the fundamental tension here is either these are people who are not that risky and we can do this, or they're super risky and we definitely shouldn't do this. I think Stephen Miller has really thought this through. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think there is a larger resource argument here. And, and this does go back to the Obama administration, which, you know, look, this is a really, really difficult problem. And and lots of, of prior administrations have struggled with how to address this. They actually do want fewer children who are genuine unaccompanied minors to be brought into the United States in unsafe condition. There, there's a lot of moving and complex pieces here. We live in a resource-constrained world, especially on national security issues, especially on border security issues. And so what the Obama administration's policy was, was to prioritize high-priority removals, uh, primarily of violent offenders and other sort of high-priority felonies. And so whenever we see this policy that the Trump administration has enacted, I think I saw the number today that it's $775 per child per night, they are, they are not only doing something that is immoral and disgusting and wrong, they are doing it instead of something else. And that something else that they are doing it instead of is actual high priority removal here. And so I do think that's another piece that this isn't just a not a rational policy. It's an affirmatively irrational policy based on their own rhetoric and stated priorities. Let's, let's pivot off for just a second uh, for a few minutes from the, the policy and talk about the politics of this as well. Because, I mean, obviously, this has become you know, one of those rare moments where uh, Republicans are not only not defending the president's policy or not standing by while he carries it out, but have affirmatively come out and told him to stop. I mean, you saw this especially from uh, elected officials in the Midwest where Trump's polling numbers are going south and some of these key places that got him the White House. Now there seems to be maybe a turning of the tide before the midterms. I was struck that this is 
one of the few instances that I can think of where the White House I mean, just completely did a 180 and capitulated on this. And in the White House signing ceremony today, the president talked about, you know, the Obama administration or whatever. But this is, I mean, essentially a complete reversal. And I found myself wondering, is have, have we now found like what the threshold is for when members of his own party will stand up and say, no, we disagree with this policy and he will actually change it like this? Is this what you have to do to kind of get through to him? Because it seems to me that any president in his position would have probably, A, never have allowed this policy to go forward to begin with because it's politically suicidal, uh, but B, would have, you know, come around maybe a lot sooner uh, before it got to the point where literally this was wall-to-wall coverage and it was becoming just a, I mean, a boiling crisis in, in Washington, in the country, and within the GOP. I mean, look, I think what it shows is you never know what's going to sort of catch fire. And so, you know, things like images, like recordings, right, it's, it's not easy to predict this stuff. You know, one thing that I do think we see from the reversal is the amount of burned credibility. Everybody who defended the president, everybody who defended this policy looks like an idiot. And not just an idiot, they look like a liar. And that includes Christian Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, an individual who needs to have the credibility to speak to the American people in a national emergency. And now, and and, and I think came in with uh, with, uh, a quite a bit of credibility, actually, right? She sort of, she had survived her White House period, uh, you know, looking like that sort of insider, outsider player, had gone to the Department of Homeland Security. There's been these stories about how she's at odds with the president, doesn't necessarily support his policies. You know, now, based on her performance at that press conference, which apparently played well with Trump himself, I don't know how anyone could believe a word that came out of her mouth. And so not only have you not gotten the policy goal because you had to reverse it in 24 hours, you've now effectively neutered your your Homeland Security chief. The other uh, inside baseball story that I'm looking at here is how John Kelly comes out of all this, because mm-hmm. this is 100% consistent with his own political beliefs and seems unlikely to me that this would have actually lasted this long without Kelly saying that, like, no, actually, this is going to be okay. We're going to last this out. Clearly, he and Stephen Miller were behind the scenes in the White House saying, this is an okay policy. We're going to survive this. This is not actually something people are going to pay attention to. Now, Kelly has also been out there talking about how, like, if Trump gets impeached, then at least this uh, this part of American history will be over, according to a political story this week. Mm. So Kelly's also like working out a bunch right. and just right. kind of has taken cool. a like He's having a lot of coffee attitude. Um, and if I could just boring this up a little bit, I think also the political cost of this comes at ICE itself, which is an agency that we do need to execute really important homeland security functions. We do want immigration control and frankly, doesn't have enough people doing it. And some of the recordings, a lot of the behavior and reporting of what is going on certainly makes things like recruiting and retention for anyone who wants to, I don't know, not be uh, seen as as basically evil, really difficult. So I'm actually going to push back on the notion that we need ICE as an agency. Um, You know, right, I'm I'm someone who uh, uh, cares a lot about border security. So I'm not saying this is like, oh, you know, we should just have open borders. But ICE is a relatively new agency. It's only about 15 years old. Other agencies did handle this in the past. It's also been an agency that has been plagued by controversy from the get-go. There have been all kinds of scandals coming out of ICE, Uh, you know, time card fraud, waste fraud and abuse, right? Just sort of basic personnel 
well compliant sort of government administration issues. They've also had issues with getting their staff, right? It's very much viewed as sort of the, the bureau's washouts. Uh, they, they were not able to recruit enough people that were able to pass polygraph examinations. So they actually had to drop the polygraph examination in order to get enough ICE agents. And so, you know, re we really are talking about an exceptionally troubled agency that has sort of um, a structural concerns from the get-go. We are now placing them in an incredibly difficult and tense situation with a high-stakes political situation. This is, this is asking for a disaster. Speaking of asking for a disaster. That was good. Excellent like transition. I don't, even, I don't even remember which story we're going to. <laughs> it just works. This week it's fine. Uh, um, we have an honest-to-God economist with us. So, Howdy. <laughs> Rada. Um, President Trump said this week that he was prepared to slap tariffs on basically everything that China produces that comes into the United States, which is All roughly um, which is roughly everything yeah. in this room right now. <laughs> Pretty much everything. Just imagine like everything in this room just like this is where like the table goes away. All the microphones fall. We know the microphones are probably made in China. <laughs> These um, microphones are made in America, Shane. Oh, okay. Well, especially this one. Uh, so that's roughly $450 billion. So like half a trillion dollars in goods. It's going to slap those tariffs on them. Um, so are we actually in a trade war now? I mean, this feels pretty worry. So you'll be pleased to know that economists don't have an agreed upon definition of trade war. So <laughs> I feel so you can much define better. a recession, but Woo! not a trade war. Uh, that having been said, That's the probably for the best <laughs> tariffs that Trump has proposed cover about ninety percent of Chinese goods coming into the U.S. It's not great. It's not a great situation. Also, just to be clear, this is escalating after China has retaliated on our initial proposal of putting tariffs on roughly 25% of Chinese goods. And I'm just going to stop using the word tariff now and calling it a tax. Mm -hmm. So here's what we're going to do. That is very Republican of you, Rada. I, here I, I'm, I'm Rada, and I'm here to message trade wars. I like it. Uh, so we're we going to tax foreign goods. So a, a couple of things to just remember for everyone who doesn't read obsessively the economists on Twitter to kind of keep track of this. One is, these are not the only tariffs we're putting on goods. We're also putting tariffs or taxes on goods uh, related to the EU that impact, uh, in particular, steel and aluminum products, uh, hitting both France and Germany pretty hard, as well as agricultural goods, which folks might remember from the G7 summit, uh, caused some consternation among the Canadians. Now, in fairness, there are lots of uh, subsidies and internal price supports, which is why I want to call these tariffs taxes, right? These are things that lower the cost of production for goods in your own country rather than increasing the cost of goods coming in. So uh, the also, uh, just as a reminder on the politics side of things, the finance chairs of the, of the Senate finance committees, uh, including the Republican finance chairs, are, are pretty opposed to these types of tariffs and uh, regulatory intrusions. So what has happened here is basically we've imposed a massive tax on consumers and economists are really worried that this is going to do a couple of bad things. One, hurt Chinese economy. We care about that because we've got a super interdependent economy and that's not great. But two, and most relevant, increase the cost to consumers in the U.S. without actually increasing production or demand for U.S. produced goods, which means there's no benefit. All you've done is had a demand side adjustment. And that is relevant as we sort of go into the midterms. Uh, and then just one last sort of economisty point here is that our general interdependence is really important in a couple of key sectors, including technology, innovation, and development. And so taxes, both on the European side and on the Chinese side, are really problematic for 
what we call intermediate input, things that you need to go into the technologies that you're producing and developing here in the US. So all of that sort of R&D pipeline becomes more and more expensive as the inputs to that pipeline increase. This is 79-dimensional chess that they're playing by destroying the economy before going into the midterms, seems like. Can I ask sort of, and and this is a genuine question because I know nothing about any of this. So who is the constituency that Trump is representing, right? I'm hearing Republicans being upset. I'm hearing Democrats being upset. Is it like, is it Donald Trump and Peter Navarro and that's it and they're just doing what they want? Or like, is there yeah. some group out there that thinks this is a good idea? So I think thinks it's a good idea and who will benefit from it are not overlapping sets. So the group that thinks it's a good idea are steel workers, steel unions, manufacture some manufacturing sectors that think that this will increase the competitiveness of American goods. Most economists and basically all of the measures from Bloomberg all the way to Oxford um, Economic Institute sort of that measure the likely impact think that there's not a supply side increase. That is that consumers are not going to pay the cost, they're going to reduce their demand. So the people who are actually betting from this are like, maybe Donald Trump and not even Peter Navarro? Like, it's not at all clear that there are net gains from the policy itself. So we have, is this, this, is, this feels very familiar, right? <clears throat> we have the president pursuing a policy that almost nobody likes that draws big public uh, condemnations. So it's like Stephen Miller equals Peter Navarro. I mean, I mean really, right. this, this feels very much like it's a kind of, you know, Trump against the so world. I think of- there's... There's even a more of an overlap. I think that's like the perfect analogy because it's also using a national security justification right. as a pretext. So that's exactly where I was going to go with this, which is the, I think the real national security hook is that we've used this. So in part to get everyone on board with these sort of freer trade regimes, we have these national security carve-outs, which we use for things like ZTE, where companies really, really abuse free trade to like introduce spyware and violate sanctions. We don't typically use it to sort of punish our friends and allies. And we certainly don't use it sort of strategically to sort of national security exemptions to cover up economic requirements. And just on that point, people who do do that a lot are the Chinese. And so like if you went to like military strategy school and you had this sort of like levers of policy, which are diplomacy, information, military, and economics, we are terrible in the U.S. at using those interchangeably, right? Because in part because they're they're spread out, right? Our government doesn't control our economic, all of our economic policies. A lot of the trade and uh, corporate engagements have to happen from the private sector. That is not true for the Chinese. And so there is a lot more sort of strategic and history of interplay between national security objectives and economic ones. We're not historically great at it. We are, haven't been thus far graded it in this case. And uh, so, you know, we're, that's kind of where we are right now, though, is trying to use those to play each other off. Peter Navarro made a comment too, where he said recently that China has a lot more to lose than the United States because, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of what they're selling to us is so much bigger than what we're, we're selling to them. I mean, is that true? I mean, is that imbalance therefore equal China's going to blink first? I mean, is that, that seems kind of like a crude calculation. Um, I think... Probably not. I mean, it's impossible to predict because this is a situation that more or less since the modern world order, we haven't really sort of pushed ourselves into. China has a lot more levers that it can pull on this in terms of currency, in terms of intellectual property violations, in terms of military inter sort of sections with 
economic policies. Um, and we're also sort of getting it from both sides, right? We're doing this with China, but we also have this sort of EU German side and on the sort of uh, allied front, the Canadians and our agricultural trade. So I'm not sure if our pain threshold for the economic consequences of these types of taxes on foreign goods is high enough to withstand the Chinese sort of livers for long enough. So what's fun about all of this is we have done this to our European partners as, as well as China, and we are going to show up at the NATO summit, the Trump, President Trump will show up at the NATO summit next month in early July. And it basically had the equivalent of like having gone to one family reunion in Canada and, you know, basically gotten wasted and spat on everybody and burned their houses down and then shown up to another family reunion to be like, hey, guys, how's it going? How how's that burden sharing thing going? Are you spending more on defense now that I've tried to destroy your economy in any way? Probably not. Also, one thing I've been struck by is that the president keeps in, in defense of this, uh, of these taxes, as we're now going to call them, right? He'll say, well, China is ripping us off in intellectual property. I mean, they're robbing our intellectual, you know, taking, you know, billions and billions of intellectual property. And that's true insofar as they've been hacking American companies and defense contractors and government agencies for a long time, that doesn't strike me as having anything to do with trade imbalance. So there's this kind of conflation that goes on between a cybersecurity national defense policy issue that has been, by the way, plaguing, you know, now this is the third administration that it's really been hitting. It is not new at all. And something that he said he wanted to address, putting aside 500-pound guy on the bed. It's kind of as the extent of the understanding maybe for him on policy, but it's not like he does not have legions of people, including a new NSA slash cybercom chief, to advise on this. But that's kind of getting thrown in with the trade imbalance. And I get that everyone says the one thing that Trump has always been consistent about is his policy on trade. He thinks that we're getting ripped off. But it starts me again like trying to shoehorn this into the national security issue. And it just seems just transparently kind of silly to try and put those two things together or am I not being charitable enough to him there? No, it's it, there's no, I think, credible defense of these as national security issues. And I would go one step further. And I think it undermines our ability to claim national security exemptions when they're relevant, when you allow companies like ZTE and when you let sort of personal channels where you're like, hey, buddy. This is the company that we had effectively <coughs> right, sorry, tried to put out of business because they were putting spyware into the United States. So I, I think that's right. It also is sort of a usurpation of uh, of congressional authority, right? So Congress passes these statutes. They're the ones that are actually supposed to be um, uh, creating these laws. They include national security exceptions and carve-outs because the idea is, hey, the executive branch has more information. They see through the intelligence community what's going on. They understand the foreign policy context. And sometimes for really important reasons, we need to allow them sort of leeway to do particular things, you know, for Trump to offer that those national security rationale as pretext over the objection of Congress, over the objection of, of members of Congress of his own party, really is, uh, it, it is taking a carve out that was sort of meant for one thing and, and abusing it. And so I think the real question now is whether or not Congress decides to reassert itself and, and pull back those national security carve outs and say, no, Congress is going to make the decision. Then we have to ask ourselves, when we have a new president, a new administration, those national security exemptions existed for a reason or exceptions existed for a reason. Uh, what situation are we going to be in and what situation is the next president going to walk into when he actually has a genuine national security need to do this? But that's just like process nerd fan fiction, though. Like, <laughs> we do a lot of that on national yeah. security. <laughs> All right. 
So I'm thoroughly depressed. So I'm thinking I just need to get off the planet Earth. Fuck this. Leave the planet behind. I'm joining the Space Force. <laughs> I have always wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was a child. I decided to become a writer instead. But now so I, too, can read my dream, realize my dream of being a space soldier. And Uncle Sam wants you. He wants me to go to space. Uh, so Aaron Simpson is here with us after a grueling space she ride of her shuttled own. shuttled in. <laughs> she shuttled in. She, too, wants to join the Space Force. <laughs> yes, the some, something like that. So, Aaron, um, I thought we had a Space Force. It was called the Air Force. Or maybe the yeah. Navy. Um, but President Trump has decided we're going to have a Space Force, uh, which is going to be separate but equal <laughs> to the his, other. His uh, rights. That was maybe not scripted. Uh, but um, space- Also, maybe it was. Also, maybe it was, which is <laughs> even spacier. Um, so what is Space Force? Why do we need it? <laughs> do we need it? Where can I sign up? And the preliminary question, what are the uniforms going to look it's like? It's all we so Like aquaflage, but like metallic or it's something. It's going to be, I mean, first off, no capes. Damn. But second, no, I no, think. No, 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 no. The, go- the general officers are going to get capes. I mean, sparkles? like, like Kirik in, in Rogue One? Exactly. That's what I want. Yeah, so sparkles. Yeah. We have sparkles. So Moving on. What so is Space sparkles. Force? I'm voting for sparkles. No sparkles, Rada. Um, so Space Force... Some of your questions are easier to answer than others. Okay. We, we can tell you where to sign up. You go to your your sort of same armed forces recruiter that you would go to now. Wait, wait, wait. Well, maybe. We're across not sure. the street? No. Across the street from my office on 15th Street, there's a sign outside the Armed Forces Career Center that says, Space Force, acquire inside, crossed out acquire, said inquire inside, because Marines don't know how to spell, let's be honest. <laughs> and, as, and as one of our Twitter, Twitter followers noted, it's on a dry erase board. They could have just fixed it anyway. <laughs> More seriously, to answer Shane's very good questions. So there's been a push for Space Force uh, for a while. Listeners of Bombshell were no, because I believe we discussed this last fall. We sure did. Um, It was called Space Corps back then. Space Force Um, is better. And uh, it's a little debatable to me, to be honest. But Space Corps was an idea that was in the National Defense Authorization Act, put in there by one Mike Rogers from the great state of Alabama. And he was, A, irritated that the Air Force was not taking some of its space missions as seriously as he would have liked. Uh, And I think, B, wanted to force um, maybe some procurement changes, but also some personnel and other mission focus uh, on that. So there is kind of, I think a lot of people would agree that there needs to be better attention some procurement reform, some personnel attention to the space mission, which is increasingly contested. Uh, we, you know, Russia and China have growing kind of anti-satellite capabilities for for one thing. Um, there's a lot of debate, however, over whether a separate service uh, is desirable. And in fact, the Space Corps proposal was much more like the Navy and the Marine Corps, where the Space Corps, quote unquote, would be under the Department of the Air Force report to the Secretary of the Air Force. What President Trump has announced is an entirely new service that would have all new uniforms and an all-new secretary and an all-new everything. And a lot of folks are somewhat skeptical that this would solve the somewhat commonly agreed upon problems. So can I ask a process question here? So Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I knew the answer to that before I said it. Um, okay, so so Trump is, is uh, whenever he makes this announcement, he's signing a directive about satellites in space. Then he kind of goes off script and says... And I'm creating, I'm ordering the Pentagon to create a Space Force. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to take this as the President of the United States has directed the Pentagon and, and plans to do this? Or is this just Trump, like, talking and and saying things and it's just all a bunch of nonsense? So the Pentagon and the Air Force are 
mostly taking it seriously. Yep. Although they're definitely issuing a lot of what I would call study counter plans. Yep. <laughs> Slow roll. So I think that's the rough Department of Defense approach to dealing with vocos, voice commands, <laughs> mm-hmm. which are um, to figure out if they're actual commands. <laughs> Part A, to figure out, part B, what the command is, and to do that by studying things, air quotes, um, until they go away or they can do what they want. Because the best part about this is as soon as Congress hears this, they're like, guys, I don't know if you've noticed, but it, you kind of need us to create- but Title 10 is a thing. A new military service, <laughs> and the president can't just do that by himself. Also, my question for you, Aaron, is, so are we basically creating Star Trek because we don't know how to buy space things? Hmm. So we do. That's not the worst. That's not the worst plan. We do know how to buy space things. We buy them very carefully, and we spend and very slowly, and we spend lots of money on them because they are extraordinary, exquisite systems that literally no one else in the world can field. So, uh, I mean, well, I I I think it's reasonable to argue that our space capabilities are exceed our our competitors. So we're gonna have a rare bombshell disagreement question with the caveat that says that. Largely, I'm channeling the briefing I got on an airplane from Oakland to BWI today, nope, and actually, plan. I don't have deep feelings <laughs> about space or forces but you're or Battlestar Galactica. I'm just going to leave it there. But so a couple of things. One is it's not at all clear to me that we do should think of us as buying exquisite, perfect things with space uh, capability preeminence and dominance at the level we think we have it. That is to say, we've premised our strategy on a space dominance approach, and that we want to sort of tighten up our acquisition timelines to maintain that dominance. But that sort of presumes a sort of continued pipeline of innovation in acquisition of that innovation that I don't know that there's evidence for, part A. And part B is, it's not at all clear to me, this probably isn't really disagreeing with Aaron, but I'm just going to keep going, that the service, creating a service of the Space Force solves any of these problems. So even the problems of acquisition, flowness, getting the right technology, getting the right personnel, the service creation doesn't solve those absent a lot of really boring follow-up questions that I could ask but would suck the fun out of this whole discussion. You don't want to talk about space procurement for like 20 minutes? <laughs> no. I mean, only if we can talk about career <laughs> progression Give the afterwards. listeners what they want, ladies. That's right. That's right. Let's go. I mean, I think that there's, I mean... I think it's 100% true that creating a new service does not solve acquisition issues, right? If that was the case, there would be variation in acquisition headaches across the services. But this variable does not explain this constant, right? It is It does not actually work that way. So the Space Force has to, for it to be useful, has to solve some other problem like attention or budget or consolidating two dozen distinct space portfolios across more than a half a dozen Defense agencies. I, I mean, mm. I am struck by, you know, this is the president of the United NRO, States. NRO, we're talking to you. <laughs> this is the president of the United States weighing in on what I'm hearing is is actually an important debate and, and an open one. And the response about the United States military, about national security, and the general response is mockery and like an assumption that he's off his rocker. So I have a theory. My theory is that he's doing this to troll Secretary Mattis, who has come out publicly several times against this entire concept he thinks is dumb, on top of which he, I, I would assume, if uh, regardless of his feelings on the substance of the matter, that he uh, does not want more shit to deal with right now because he's got, frankly, a lot of things to do. So that this was, at the end of the day, President Trump saying, like, 
I don't care that you disagree. I'm going to make you do a space force. Well, that which is points, kind of awesome, we, actually. In points to something else, which has been brewing sort of in political circles in the rumor mill for the past week, which is that Mattis is kind of on the outs, right? That I just got is... four text messages about this like in the last hour. <clears throat> My okay, God. We'll see. We can break some news here on the podcast. So, I mean, this is, but you're hearing this now. The, the, the whispers are kind of growing into more of a, uh, you know, a conversation where Mattis seems to be on the outs. And then, of course, that freaks a lot of people in the Washington establishment out because what Mattis is sort of the last grown up in the room, right? Um, so, I mean, do we think if he's trolling him, I mean, it seems to me that that's actually a seems to me a logical theory. We've seen this happen before. I mean, the president has taken shots sometimes obliquely at cabinet officials with whom he is uh, has a beef. Uh, you know, maybe it's too soon to say that signals that Mattis is on the outs. We're going to need a whole other show about that. But I like this theory that this is because I mean, it, while Trump does make policy out loud. He clearly is aware that there is a whole background conversation to this one. He didn't just sort of pull it out of I, like I don't know. Deep it, space. I think it's an open question whether the president understands that he requires congressional action in order to implement. Well, this. that part, that yeah, that part is a like issue. I think that he yeah. was told he was going to event in Space Coast in Florida. There were going to be a bunch of defense industry <laughs> executives. Want to say something know. big? And he yeah, he was like. Uh, how about a space force, yo? Like, I mean, and, and clearly other folks had like lobbied on this. this yeah. is, I mean, like as we said, this is not a new topic of concern or even proposal, but yeah, I mean. So just, that's what I was going to say. I, I, It's not clear to me that he doesn't think he came up with this idea. That is to say, like the last aid in the car. Debate. Like we think there's a debate, but I he think also he said we're going he... back to the moon and to Mars. And I also, have a list of people but, I'd like to send to both those places. But we but... don't need magnets anymore. <laughs> right? We no don't need steam, magnets for landing. And we're going to use goddamn coal. <laughs> Right. That's going to be the that cold makes sense for the, steampunk. The so what do we have here Sorry. is a steampunk space program. <laughs> oh my god! It's a cool which means the Mars, uniforms baby. are going to be extra, extra awesome. Hell yeah! I can't wait. Post apocalyptic. I'm so behind sparkles. this. Wow. So Shame one somewhat serious policy question. So let's say that I mean this is this is the this is the challenge of the Trump era. Like he can't unsay it. Right. Uh, Congress is actually due to there's there's a report due to Congress on Air Force space missions in August. Um, and so we'll see kind of what they do with it. Obviously, there's some folks in the House who would like to press forward with this. Um, the Secretary of the Defense and Secretary of the Air Force are pretty meh about it. Um, but there's this is they, they can't like literally do nothing. So there's going to be staff calories put against this and proposals put forward. And so we have the current voice order from the president for a completely separate force we have mike rogers previous proposal of a subordinate command essentially within the the air force um and we have so there's a kind of a third idea or one that would be at least more interesting to me which would be a socom like model but for space so special operations command has both train organize equip missions um sort of but they yep. take uh, personnel from all the existing services. Correct. And they define force requirements and training requirements. Right. They also have separate procurement requirements Correct. and then they have actual operational authority over those Correct. deployed forces. So it's almost a fifth service, but they don't actually do their own force generation. And they don't have a joint chiefs rep and they fundamentally don't have the same like requirements on reporting to Congress. So their, their force sizing requirements go through the services. But I agree. I think that's the like model that makes this thing is that kind of model but like they also um, from a procurement side are totally different in, from socom in terms of they buy big exquisite really extraordinarily big thing. expensive things which means i don't know that you're going to get the procurement benefits Correct. out of this arrangement that socom has done so all right 
We're going to do a rational security segment now. Object yes. lessons. Um, let's start with our guests. Rada, would you like to share your object first? I sure would. Uh, so I, as many guests know, uh, or many of our regular listeners know, live in California and I flew in today. And I, coming from the airport, took public transit here. And I, as my object lesson, would like to offer the red line, which I know denizens <laughs> of the this District is a of very Columbia. Denizens of the District of Columbia resent the red line. I know it's had its issues. I myself, when I lived here, lived in Capitol Hill and really resented a lot of the metro problems. Go to the Bay Area. Come to appreciate your trains and metros. So Drive two hours from Falls Church. Correct. Yes. Red line. Wow. Okay. Object lesson. So says the, the resident from Cali. Lauren? Okay, let me say up front that this is going to sound sad, but I actually find it hilarious. Um, <laughs> Does that make it more sad? I don't no, know. I really want to know. <laughs> a little. I don't know. So, okay, I, I have with me in, in the room right now a giant poster-sized portrait of my, uh, my, my former boss, Sean Brimley, who passed away in January from cancer, who many of you know. So the reason I have this with me is because we have our annual conference tomorrow, and I'm supposed to figure out a way to display it. And it was handed to me out of a car as the rain started coming down. And I'm like toting this over to Brookings in a plastic bag, like through downtown Washington as like the rain comes down. And the whole time I'm thinking, what the fuck am I doing with this portrait of Sean? And he would like find it would to be... He would find it hilarious. Insane. Like, Lauren, just like drop it. You don't need this right now. Dear God, just like get rid of this thing. Also, the portrait is odd. Amazing. It's it's fabulous at, at the end of the day. So um, I, I kind of feel like my next adventure novel will be about me having to tote around Sean's portrait in various adventures in Washington uh, forevermore. I like it. Aaron? I'm reading an excellent book called The Female Persuasion by Meg Wolitzer. Uh, and I was in a very severe book rut for many months earlier this year and have kind of come blasting out of it. So this is uh, an excellent summer read, although not per se a beach read, but it's modern and incredibly well written. And for anybody who likes literary fiction in the audience, I think that they should dive into that. Sam Sanders did an excellent interview on his podcast oh. uh, with the author. I find Aaron book recommendations to generally be like spot on. Okay. Excellent. Right on. Susan? Um, so my object lesson is a photograph um, that I'm pulling up right now so that everybody can see it for real. And it is a photograph of my wedding because today is my wedding anniversary. And it's almost seven o'clock and I'm at the office. Sorry, honey. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Susan. And Susan's honey. Um, so my object lesson is just um, my anniversary and uh, my husband, who is wonderful and makes a lot of things possible, including doing this crazy blog and this crazy podcast and being here with all of you. So I love you. Happy anniversary. Yay. Um, I haven't been this excited for an object lesson in a while. <laughs> Uh, after news of President Trump's announcement of Space Force, Space which Force. is a military command, as we've discussed, I received a press release <clears throat> from Asgardia, the first space nation. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Which Amazing. calls for space to be demilitarized. They launched right into their policy of <laughs> wanting space to be demilitarized. I've got some bad news. Uh, and my first question was actually, excuse me, wait, there's a space nation? So, okay, I get that you don't want it demilitarized, but wait a minute. What the hell is this? So I investigated. This is... This is straight up. Asgardia, the first space nation, is named after Asgard, a flying city in ancient Norse mythology. Yep. Obviously. Asgard, you guys know what this is? Of course. We Christmas, 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 
four. four. Oh shit! Asgardia was also, founded by Doctor Igor Ashrubelli, who became Asgardia's first head of nation. Okay, this is a thing, you guys. You can become a citizen of Asgardia. You can sign up. Uh-huh. Apparently, there are thousands. Do you get detained at the border if you're a citizen? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Tax requirements. Apparently, they get very annoyed when one of the questions that people start to ask them after they sign up is, "So, when are we going to space?" Which seems like the obvious. <laughs> question. That's the first question you would ask. <laughs> um, and the answer is not soon, but you can become a citizen. I mean, I, I swear to God, I thought this was a joke. And no, it's a real thing. The internet and has bred so much, so many wonders. Yeah, it has. And I have to say, at the end of it, I was like, hell yes, Asgardia, you go, do it. Like, form a space nation. I'm all about it. I'm not saying I'm going to sign up. However, I started this very skeptically. What does their flag look like? No, it's good here. They have a crest. It's like a little atom they have a crest. with olives and a crown. Is it the U.S.? I, it's kind of, look, I'm... <laughs> I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying it's a you thing. Are, you are clearly Okay, I'm sort of endorsing it. I just, you know, look. They can retweets like retweets. are definitely endorsing it. Okay, Asgardia may need a graphic designer and <laughs> some editing choices. But um, just so you know. But Shane is here to help. In. He's bought it. And you can, you can go sign up, right? And we're all going to do it. Yeah. You go first. Sure. We'll, we'll catch up. We'll all become citizens. Um, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. This Thanks. was fun. This was fun. Rational was fun. security meets bombshell. I won't bother with our end credits. Do you guys do end credits? You don't do end credits, really. Sort I don't know what that means. No, we say, say thank you. We'll tell everybody to follow us on Twitter at yeah, follow us. Rate us. What's your handle on Twitter? No, don't read yeah, that's us. a good question. Hashtag bombshell, W-O-T-R, and we don't have a handle. Ryan. This is how, like, you don't have Ryan a handle and we don't Evans. have a show page. Yeah. Right. Oh, we should combine. Oh, we yeah. should Together, we are one also in fairness awesome. podcast. Our we should form a union. <laughs> Our show page has some issues. <laughs> well, Thanks, everybody. Of, on behalf of Asgardia, I mean rational security <laughs> and bombshell, this has been fun. Thanks it for coming sure has. Good to get together. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.